Well, tonight we really kind of embark on our official journey here. We've had an introduction. We're going to study on the Holy Spirit. And now we're going to look at the book of Acts, really from the standpoint that it was written. And you might imagine the Apostle Luke, as he writes the book of Acts, this really culmination to his ministry experience, he's now going to write with this incredible excitement because he, like the rest of the apostles, has traveled with Jesus. He's watched Jesus work. He's seen Jesus die. He's seen Jesus raised. He's now seen Jesus alive. And he's going to see Jesus rise into heaven. And Jesus is going to challenge the apostles. And so this is the beginning of the church. And in a sense, as we read it, it's kind of our story. It's really us. It's the beginnings of the true church. And so very often churches get divided into this denomination or that denomination or this group or that group or you know mainline evangelicalism as you'll hear used in the news media uh, versus you know those who are pentecostals or those who are highly conservative and those who are liberal we we get divided up by people groups but from god's perspective as the church begins There's exactly one church. And this book is the history of that church. And so as we take the whole chapter, chapter one tonight, would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful to be a part of the history. Lord, looking back, should you tarry, uh, there might well be a little story, a little chapter that would be added to the book of Acts. The Acts of the Apostles carried out as they went out into all of the world, preaching the gospel, making disciples of all men, as they did those things, we are the fruit of those first century Christians taking seriously the call to ministry. And Lord, may we take that call seriously. Would you use us, use this time, encourage your church, strengthen us. Be with us tonight as we study Bless us, Lord. Just fill us up with your spirit. Holy Spirit, again, come. Uh, Empower us. We've had a long day. But we want this evening to be special as we meet with you. So bless us as we study your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now remember, as we continue the book of Acts, there's some things that we believe. And what we believe is important. And as you might imagine, an awful lot of questions after morning services and people came to me with their thoughts and concerns on matters. But when we turn to the scriptures and we read them and we rightly interpret them, we have God's take on all things. And so the book of Acts is God's take on the church. And the early church believed many things and we're going to look at them tonight. Uh, Here in chapter 1, the first thing we see is that they believed in a risen Christ. And I want to remind you that apart from the risen Christ, 
there are no Christians. If Jesus is not risen, then we are still dead in our trespasses and sins. And so one of the very first things that we see proclaimed in the book of Acts is their absolute belief that Jesus Christ was raised. And so we find this resurrection fact emboldened, enforced, and laid out absolutely without a doubt in the very first chapter of the history of the church. And so some things uh, that the church can cling to even tonight as the church is really birthed or born Jesus style. Verse 1, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to both do and teach. And so it's a history uh, of those things now being carried forward into a new generation until the day which he was taken up. After he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. And so it becomes very clear that Jesus is alive. Jesus is going to be taken up. Jesus has promised the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to come. We'll see that in the next chapter. And empower this early church. And so the commandments are given to the apostles. They're, they're in essence, given their marching orders. Now, we have a vision here at Calvary Chapel South Bay. It's very simple. Most of you know it. It's wise. It's to win. It's to instruct. It's to send. And it's to encourage. And and the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Luke would really come tonight and they'd say, yes, amen. Because if you don't win people to Christ, there's no point in instructing them in Christian things. And, and if you instruct them, then you ought to send them or at least put them forth in service. And once you put them forth in service, you really need to encourage them. And so to some degree, the story of the book of Acts is also our mission statement. It's to win. It is to instruct. It is to send. And it is to encourage. They also believed in the reality of that resurrection As you're thinking about what they believed, not only did they believe that Christ was risen because they saw him, but there was a reality to the resurrection. You see, it's one thing to believe in the resurrection as some mystical thing. It's another thing to believe in the reality of the resurrection as an absolute historical fact. That Jesus Christ was in fact murdered and then he was raised literally from the dead by the power of God. Notice verse 3. To whom he also presented himself alive. Why is that noted? Because he was dead. Jesus was dead. He didn't swoon. He didn't faint. A whole bunch of people didn't have a mass hallucination. His body was not stolen by the apostles. The Romans didn't just kind of beat him up and then let him go. Jesus Christ was absolutely dead. And so in order to confront that theory that perhaps he wasn't dead, perhaps he was knocked unconscious, perhaps maybe somehow he survived the incredible torture as he was first in Pilate's courtyard. He's tried illegally six times from about midnight to the early morning hours. He's bounced back and forth between Annas and Caiaphas and Herod and Pilate, and he's kicked around and beat up. He's struck with the rod. His beard is plucked. The crown of thorn pressed on his head. 
He is lashed nearly to death, and then he is nailed to a cross. So just in case anybody thinks anyone survived that, the apostles all with their life said Jesus Christ was dead, and then he appeared to them very much alive. And this was done after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during the 40 days in speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So they believed in the reality of a formerly dead Jesus who was now very much alive. A Jesus who was crucified and laid in a tomb and professional soldiers were hired to make sure that he didn't get out of that grave and nonetheless, Jesus is risen. They bore witness to that fact. And as the church began to grow in the early first century, this was the main reason that most of them were persecuted. All they needed to do was deny the fact that Jesus was risen. Everybody was okay when he was simply a man who had very strong convictions and allowed himself to be beat up. But Jesus declared himself to be the I am. And when he did that and he spoke to the Pharisees and he said to them, who do men say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. He agreed with them. That's who I am. And so this one who was formerly dead that's now alive was also God. In that day and time, Caesar was God. And to have any other opinion on the matter was to put yourself directly in harm's way with the government of Rome. So anyone that carried forth this proposition that Jesus Christ was God incarnate in human flesh and had literally died and been resurrected, that was an affront to Caesar. And so they believed in the reality of his resurrection. A third thing, we see it in the second half of the third verse. As he was seen by them those 40 days and speaking these things, they, they believed in this kingdom that was going to come. You remember, they actually asked Jesus multiple times, when will the coming of your kingdom be? And he said, it's not for you to know the day or the hour when the Son of Man comes. Only the Father knows. But the apostles, those who ultimately would die for that faith, believed very much in the coming kingdom. We're all a part of that kingdom, Amen. Isn't that crazy? Think about it for a second. From these 12 guys passing along this message, and yes, there were many others, and we're going to see that Jesus appeared to a single group of 500 people at one time. So he made himself known to many people. But from that, that little nucleus of faith, the entire church throughout the last 2,000 years was birthed with some central tenets of faith that there is a God in heaven, that God in heaven has one son, that one son is also God who dwelled on this earth in a human body, was fully man and was fully God, and God died for the sins of mankind so that we might be saved. And he promised that his kingdom would come. That kingdom dwells inside of each of you. 
If you're here tonight and you know the Lord, there's a little chunk of that kingdom that's in each one of us. It's our relationship with the Lord. They believed in that coming kingdom. And not just the kingdom that's in us, but the kingdom that's yet still to be fulfilled. Because our king's coming one of these days. And he is going to fulfill every single thing he said. And he's coming back as the lion and not the lamb. A fourth thing. They believed in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we studied this last week in detail. Verse 4, it goes on. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. Jesus makes the promise, speaking it again for them in case they didn't remember. For John truly baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so in this first chapter, we're getting a picture of what will actually transpire and what will happen and and the result of what will happen. And therefore, when they had come together, they asked him saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Well, is this about the nation Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You're going to receive something that you've never had before in the fullness in which you're going to get it. That's going to be power to do things you never believed possible. Because to live a kingdom life today in this world is a God thing, amen? It's not a man thing, and it's not something you can do in your own power. If you're resting and trusting in your own power to live godly in Christ Jesus in the world that we live in, I'm gonna tell you something, and I don't mean to bum you out, but you're gonna fail. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, you have very little chance of having sufficient power to overcome the things that you will confront. And so that kingdom will come The Holy Spirit would come upon them, and you shall be, again, witnesses, or in the same word, we find the word martyr. To me in Jerusalem, you're going to give your all. It's another, when you use the word martyr, we use it in a modern context to kind of almost mean people who are almost crazy. But the Apostle Paul actually declared that he was a martyr. For I count not my own life dear. Those things which were gained to me I now count as rubbish. He considered his own life to be unworthy, to be mentioned in the same breath with the Lord Jesus. Witnesses to me in Jerusalem. And they're they're now as they're going to watch the Lord Jesus ascend into heaven. We're going to see as we finish this chapter tonight that they're, they're on the Mount of Olives. They're likely in the general vicinity of Bethany. They're a Sabbath day's journey away, which in that day and time, according to the book of Joshua, the rabbis had all gotten together and, and determined that you could travel perhaps 2,000 cubits, which would be 2,000 times 18 inches or a foot and a half. So maybe 3,000 feet, about a half a mile. You could travel a very short distance. So 
when this is done, they're a half mile from Jerusalem. That's on the Mount of Olives on the backside, likely near Bethany. Jerusalem, in all of Judea, they would have been looking out from the Mount of Olives and the surrounding hills, looking over at Mount Scopus. Perhaps if they were far enough on the backside, they, w- they would have been looking down uh, the valley as, as the Kedron, the Brook Kedron empties and, and joins with the, the small little creek that comes from the, the Hinnom Valley, and they would have then descended down to the Dead Sea. They could have seen all around. They could have looked at Judea. They, they actually literally could have seen it. And beyond that would have been Samaria to the north. The land of those hated half-breeds, half Assyrian, half Jew, despised by the Jewish people, Gentiles, and, and yet the Lord was saying, we, we, we want to love the Samaritans. We want to reach into Judea. And then everything beyond that would have been a foreign land to the ends of the earth. From Jerusalem, the, the Jewish people believed Jerusalem was the center of the, of the world. Not just the center of their world, but literally the center of the world. It was a place where God's presence dwelled. As God's presence dwelled there, those who were there were blessed. That's why every Jew to this day, next year, Jerusalem, so longing to touch that remaining piece of the retaining wall of the temple. And now we draw to the remainder of the chapter and some things from it. So we pick up in verses 9 through 11. They believed in the assurance that he's coming again. Oh man, what a promise, amen? You see, as I think on our world today, one of the things that keeps me going is Jesus is coming again. Now, there are two ways that Jesus is going to come again. Once, to meet us in the clouds. And those who happen to be alive at that time, who are believers in Christ, will be caught up to meet him in the air. So he's coming again at that harpazo, the rapture. But he's also coming literally to this earth. That second coming. Notice what he says, verse 9, Luke writing, And now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, I love the way the Lord works. You know, I had a number of prayer requests today as I was at the door and then back here in the sanctuary after services. And they were the why prayer requests. You know, why do you think the Lord would allow this? Why do you believe the Lord would do this? How come the Lord is working in this way? I will tell you, I don't always have an answer for those types of questions. I don't know. God doesn't tell me everything, but God tells me enough. He doesn't tell me everything, but he tells me enough. He gives me enough of the story so that I don't lose hope. He gives me enough of the story so I have joy. He gives me enough of the story to know that this isn't the end of the story. And now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, can you imagine? Here's these men that have traveled. Here's these women that have traveled. 
Remember, there are ladies in the group. We're going to see some of those that are there. Jesus' own family's traveling with them. While they watched, you see, sometimes the Lord works in such ways that you're watching what he's doing. Not always. But when you need one of those watching moments, Jesus will give you a watching moment. He'll let you see something from such a unique perspective that it's for you. These people needed to see this because they were going to confront a very hostile world. And they needed to know without any reservation that the Lord was real. And so he gave them that. And while they watched, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And this is an ascension. He didn't just disappear. He was taken up. This was not instantaneous. It happened over some time. They watched the Lord Jesus leave this earth and go to heaven. Now, I've seen some pretty strange things. Have you ever traveled out in our Mojave Desert? And you get out on some of those straight sections of the roads that are out in the middle of nowhere, and it's 120 degrees. You can see some weird things out there. The heat comes up, and it kind of warps the horizon. You're like, man, I think that, that's like ETs out there. <laughs> that's not this. They knew Jesus. They saw him alive, and they are watching that same Jesus ascend to heaven and be received into a cloud and taken into glory. We're not told how long it took, but we're told it was a process. It was not instantaneous. He was taken up. A couple of steps to it. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he again went up, they weren't staring at a place where he was and he disappeared They're like, oh my, there he goes. They got to see him leave. I don't know about, I'd be kind of freaking out. I'd be like running around trying to get the last glimpse. Do you guys ever watch balloons when they float off into, you know, into the atmosphere, uh, helium balloons? It's kind of like, it's a sport. And so you're sitting there staring And the helium balloon takes off, and for the first five minutes, it's all good. You can see it, even if you have eyes like mine, which aren't that great anymore. But then about 10 minutes into the thing, it's like, I think it's right there, isn't it? No, that's that's a bird. No, that's a plane. No, it's Superman. (laughs) And, And you watch, and it just disappears from sight. You don't know where it went. You just can't see it anymore the same thing here he looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up and behold two men stood by them in white apparel and we know that these were angels the the way that they appear on the scene what they're wearing that typical vision that one has when one sees an angel those two men stood by them very similar to that that we see at the resurrection of the lord Except then you have some highly paid guards shaking in their boots who said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? 
Why are you staring at the clouds? This same Jesus. So there were no strangers. They knew who it was that had left. This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. How did they see him? Visibly. In like manner. The world is going to see Jesus return. And he's going to touch down on this planet. He's coming back. I can't wait for that day. That's a promise. Your Bible says through the ministry of these two angels that the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven and as surely as the apostles saw him ascend, so assuredly will he return. Man, what a day that's going to be. Now, if we happen to be here when he raptures the church, we're going to go up and meet him in the air, go hang out at the marriage supper of the Lamb, then we're coming back with him. But if we're already in heaven, we're going to go from heaven right back with Jesus. Now, I don't know how many of you like riding horses, but you might want to start liking riding horses. Because we're coming galloping back as an army from heaven with the Lord Jesus. Jesus, back in John 16, had promised the Holy Spirit would come. And he needed to depart for the Holy Spirit to take on the Holy Spirit's role in the day and times that we live in. Whereas Jesus was the predominant member of the Trinity at work during that time. The Lord Jesus traveled, the Lord Jesus healed, the Lord Jesus did all those things. The Holy Spirit was surely there. It is now the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul wrote to the church and reminded us that these things that are happening now will continue as they are until the restrainer of evil is removed. The Holy Spirit in the life of believers, the church, the Holy Spirit will then be removed and the Lord Jesus will then come back. So it does appear that right now we're in that time when the Holy Spirit's at work in our world. People often ask, well, you know, what's Jesus doing in heaven? Now, I I will tell you that to give people encouragement many times, I will say, well, you know, right now I think he's having a, a walkabout on a mansion in heaven with a loved one that maybe has gone on before us. There there are all kinds of things that we can think of, but Scripture actually tells us some of the things that Jesus is doing. In fact, Hebrews chapter 4 reminds us that he is our interceding high priest. Now, I love that role of the Lord Jesus because I need grace and I need mercy, and Jesus is interceding before Father God before me. Uh, Father, Jeff needs some more grace today and some more mercy and he has it because he's in me. We also have him as an advocate. First John chapter 1 reminds us that, that when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. So can you imagine, think of this for a second. What's Jesus doing? He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And every time you need a word spoken on your behalf before Father God, the Lord Jesus says, paid for that one dad 
covered it at the cross. Forgiven, forgotten, remembered no more. Done. He's our advocate. And he's also in this world, in you. Because Christ in you is your hope of glory. You have Christ in you by the power of the Holy Spirit as you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also God. And so you have the Spirit of God in you. So you have Jesus in you because Jesus is also God. So Jesus is working through his church. As they watch those two angels kind of gently rebuked, you know, it's like, hey, you got stuff to do. Go get busy. You know, don't sit there gawking. You ever tell, you know, you ever have people that, you know, you're hanging out with and you got something to do? It's like, come on, let's go. Let's get busy. Places to go, people to see, things to do. The angels are kind of doing that with the disciples, with the apostles. It's like, look, we got stuff to do. And I love what Hebrews says about these angels. Sometimes people get fanciful things that they they kind of conjure up in their own mind. But again, we're told in Scripture, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? In other words, angels are around to help take care of us. So sometimes you think you're alone, but there are ministering spirits everywhere taking care of God's kids. Now we need help, amen? We're all wandering around. You ever wondered? You ever had those thoughts? Man, if I'd have been there 30 seconds sooner in that intersection, I, I, you know, I would have been in a car accident. You ever had those times when somehow miraculously, I don't know if you guys do this, but I'm one of those people, I, I like, okay, I have, my gas gauge says I have 17 miles. I only need to go 15, I can make it. And somehow the traffic jam happens and you know you've been sitting there long enough to burn up everything that you had in your tank, but somehow you just, I think an angel went to the gas station. It's like, I don't know. Their ministering spirits are sent to take care of us. And I love that. What an encouragement to the church. And so here are the apostles. The angels are standing there going, what are you guys looking at? It's like, come on, let's go. Let's get to work. And yet those angels were there actually to minister to the apostles and encourage them and strengthen them and lift them up. Sometimes in those moments of weakness, I wonder if it isn't an angel that comes alongside and just kind of gently reminds us in our spirit that the Lord's with us. Who can be against us? No weapon fashioned against us can prosper, for we are more than conquerors through him. When you start to think of the promises of Scripture, think about the angels doing everything they can to make every one of those things a reality in your life. It's awesome. God loves us that much. They gave that assurance to those believers gathered that day that the Lord Jesus would come again. Just he was was taken up. Man, I don't know to what extent we're going to view the whole thing. But man, when Jesus comes again, you talk about a spectacle. 
You know, I, I got to admit, I was kind of a little bummed about the Olympic Games this time. And not to bash, you know, my friends down in Brazil, but I was kind of like, I just didn't get the whole thing. You know, it was kind of, it was a little samba-ish and kind of, I wasn't that much into it. But I know what I'm going to be into. When the Lord Jesus comes back, I'm getting binoculars. Like, yeah, I want to see him when he first appears. I don't know where that's going to be out there in the outer reaches of the heavens. I'm not sure, but I know this. It's going to be the most pomp and circumstance this universe has ever known. And he's coming back physically and visibly to this earth. And in fact, so much that we're told, behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen? So whether it's the second coming or the rapture they're speaking of here, I personally believe it's the second coming that's in view because ultimately that will be the final coming back to this earth. Regardless of which view you have, that is our motivation. Man, Jesus is coming again. So we ought to be busy. What are you thinking about? Lord, what would you have me do? Well, what's my part in all of this? And I wonder what the disciples were thinking that night as they're watching this. Okay, now what? What do I do? Where do I go? And I think it kind of looked like a shotgun tournament to a start, shotgun start to a golf tournament. In, in a golf tournament, if there's a shotgun start, you, you take people and you put them on every single hole, and they all start at once. Two or three foursomes on each hole, and it's like everybody tees off on, you know, one through 18, and somebody's hitting the first ball. The entire course is activated all at once. And I think that's what was happening here. Let's go reach the world for the cause of Christ. Let's not stay here. Some of you are going to go to Judea. Some of you are going to Samaria. Some of you are going to the uttermost. The Apostle Paul is going to take off into the Gentile world. These 12 guys were going to minister primarily to the Jewish people. But let's go seek and save them that are lost. They believed he was coming again. A sixth thing. They also believed in each other. Verse 12. And then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. So the Mount of Olives which was near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And that's where it's important to have that tidbit of information I gave you. If you're thinking a day's journey, somebody like me in my prime, even with a 70-pound backpack, that's 30-plus miles. That could have been down near the Dead Sea. But a Sabbath day's journey was probably a half mile or so. And so they weren't very far from Jerusalem. And all of that's the Mount of Olives. is where Jesus often went to pray, and often went to meet with the disciples. And it's also on the back side of it is Bethany, and a little bit further on is Bethpage. The road to Jericho takes off and goes around the back of the mountain and then descends down to the, the city of Jericho, which is down in the Jordan Valley. And so they were a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room and where they were staying. And so this may be the upper room. I personally believe it is. I I think that room got used more than once, in other words. Jesus went there, and it was a place that they knew, and so they gathered together. 
just across the, the city of Jerusalem. He would have gone around probably the south end through the city of David, uh, around the south end of the Temple Mount, which is much smaller than it is today. And they would have walked to this place that uh, is in the general vicinity of the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre now. And so just on the other side of the Temple Mount, Peter, and notice the names, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James. And all these continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And with his brothers. And so Jesus had more than one brother. We're not told exactly how many. But that makes sense. So if Mary's still alive and she's called the mother of Jesus. And Jesus has brothers. Then Mary had more than one child named Jesus. I want to think on that. You see, as this passage unfolds, we see this incredible unity. They're all in one accord. And they're in prayer and supplication. They're not just in standard prayer. They're not just kind of lifting up needs. They're on their face before God. They're supplicating. Lord, what would you have us do? Where are we going to go? Jesus is gone. And they obey his command. They return to Jerusalem. And there they meet where that Passover had been celebrated. We'll also find them, we saw them in Luke 24, worshiping in the temple. And what a variety of people is in this group. And it's men, it's women, it's the apostles, it's Jesus' family. And the thing that I think is cool is they were ordinary people. This is not a bunch of Bible college graduates. These are not seminary people. These are just people who spent time with Jesus and they changed the world. These are people who hung out with Jesus. You know, sometimes I think we miss a little bit of the power of the church. The power of the church is in the power of the Holy Spirit and people hanging out with Jesus and each other. Because what happens is when you start to encourage each other and lift each other up and see gifts in each other and encourage those gifts and those gifts grow, we can accomplish way more together than we ever could apart. Jesus was a unity guy. And he taught his disciples, he taught the apostles to have unity. His brothers actually hadn't believed on John 7 reminds us of that. They didn't come to trust in him until after the resurrection, which we find here. So now the whole family's saved. And Mary's hanging out with them. Mom's hanging out with the kids. You know what's interesting and what's missing? Remember the last time they kind of got together and we saw them together? They're arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They're no longer doing that. They're not, okay, can I sit at the right? You sit at the left. They're just loving each other and loving God and getting ready to go to work. Do something for the Lord. 
maybe some of those that were family members might have claimed some special kind of privilege. There's all kinds of things that could have been going on, but that is not evidenced in the text. And so I truly believe that now they've actually come to that one place where, look, man, we're all saved by grace through faith. Let's just join hands and do what the Lord tells us to do. I'm not against books on church planning. I think they're sometimes useful and helpful. But I can tell you this, they didn't have any books about church planning. They, they had no manual. There was nobody really in charge. Peter takes that role, which he was told to do, by the way. He wasn't told to be Pope. He was simply told, these guys are kind of lame. They need a leader. Somebody needs to make a decision for them. We're going to see in chapter 2 that Peter takes that admonition very seriously. And he immediately begins to preach. A wonderful unity abounded. They were in one accord. And that phrase means to be bound together. Inseparably bound together in one accord. Tied up in a commonality that was undeniable. That same phrase is found six times in the book of Acts. All the way to chapter 15, you're going to see it occasionally. It's not enough for us, I don't believe, to just simply have faith in the Lord. We actually have to have some faith in each other as well. Now, it's our faith in the Lord that saves. It's our faith in the Lord that empowers. But we're in this thing called a walk together. And we need each other. That's why scripture says, woe to him when he falls who has no one to help him. That's why it says two are better than one. That's why we're reminded, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? There's supposed to be some walking together and there's supposed to be some binding together. And it was time for them to begin praying together and standing together in the Lord. The seventh thing, they believed in prayer. You know, it's kind of weird to me is how few people really believe in prayer. Well, they pray, but it's as if they're doing something because they think they have to do it because that's what Christians do. But if you talk to them whether they believe that prayer or not, well, I hope so. I think so. Maybe are the terms that are often used. When you pray, you pray believing Otherwise, you're praying a faithless prayer, and God's not going to answer that prayer. You need to pray in belief. You need to trust God that he's going to answer it. Now, here's the rub. God answers in three principal ways. And really, if you want to look at it this way, they're the only ways that God answers. Sometimes he answers yes. He does exactly what you prayed for. And he, you know, he may do some variation, but he answers affirmatively. He answers no. You pray for a new Beamer, mysteriously you don't get one. Because he knows you can't afford the payment. So no Beamer for you. He answers no. And then the other way, wait. Oh, I hate that. That's my least favorite answer from God. And here's why I believe, in a general sense, that the Lord answers wait. Because he's working together the lives of pushing 8 billion people who are on this planet simultaneously. 
and your life intersects the lives of other people, and this church touches our community and other churches, and we're all in this together. And so maybe you don't believe this, but you're actually not the focus of the universe. And so God takes everything into account. So very often, he says, Jeff, you need to wait. Oh, no, not that again, Lord. I have to have more patience. Uh Uh-huh, you need to have more patience, Jeff. Because when it has its perfect work in you, it leaves you complete and lacking nothing. So they weren't arguing about who's the greatest. They believed in prayer. They said, look, we're not going to argue about anything. We're going to pray about everything. We're not arguing about anything. We're going to pray about everything. And then in those days, Peter stood up, verse 15 said, in the midst of the disciples. And you may see in quotations or brackets there, which means in some of the manuscripts that that phrase is not found. But we're told that how many there were altogether. The names were about 120. And said, and they prayed and said, you, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which of these two you have chosen. They're lacking one apostle. They don't have 12 anymore, amen? The reason they don't have 12, we know pretty well. His name's coming up. To take part in this ministry and the apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go down to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. They prayed. Very often I'll be asked, well, you know, it kind of looks like they were gambling. No, they were praying. They cast lots. That was a common way in the Jewish culture. It's kind of like we draw straws, those types of things. But they were not, you know, well, I don't know. So let's, let's roll some dice, man. Whoever gets a six. Wasn't that at all. And if you check out the book of Acts, you're going to find from the beginning to the end, all the way to Acts 28, there's a storm. God would heal a sick man. There's many prayer meetings and people are praying. There's believers in John Mark's house and they prayed for Peter when he was in prison and the Lord delivered him from prison. They believed in the power of prayer. Peter and John prayed for the Samaritans. Saul of Tarsus, who would become Paul, prayed after his conversion. What does he do? Falls on his face and he prays. We need to pray. And we need to stop making it the last thing that we do and make it the first thing that we do. Almost every chapter in the book of Acts, you're going to find a reference to prayer. Almost every chapter. And I believe that it is both the thermometer and the thermostat of the church. You can tell how hot a church is on fire for the Lord by the amount of prayer that happens. And you can tell how hot that church is going to make this world by the amount of prayer that happens. Because a praying church is a powerful church. And a prayerless church is not going to be very warm for Jesus. And so we see them praying. John Bunyan, as he wrote a preface, part of a story that isn't actually found in Pilgrim's Progress, he said, prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, 
and a scourge to Satan. I like that part. Because I get a whooping every once in a while from him. And I kind of take some delight in dishing it out. It's like, really? I'm just going to pray. Because greater is he who's in me than he who's in this world. And so I'm going to seek God. I know in whom I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which he has committed unto the day of Christ Jesus. I'm absolutely convinced. I take my last breath here, I'm going to open my eyes and see Jesus. That doesn't make me stupid, but it does make me somewhat fearless. It's like, what have I got to lose? Oh, rats, I got killed, I have to go to heaven. And according to James, it's a vapor, so I'll see Connie very shortly. Not saying I wish that. But that's the story of what will happen. It says there in verse 16, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and then obtained a part in this ministry. How what a tragedy the life of Judas is. You need to remember, he saw the same miracles that everybody else saw. He walked in the same footsteps as everyone else. He went to church as many times as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He was at as many prayer meetings as the rest of the guys. He was as close to Jesus as his own half-brother. They hung out together. And yet Judas somehow managed to miss it. Don't let that be you. Don't just come to church. You come meet with Jesus. And make sure that you love him. And now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity. And falling out headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his entrails gushed out. Pretty gory scene. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that this field is called in their own language, Elkadama. That is the field of blood. And I want you to notice, it's not because his blood was spilt there. It's because it was purchased with blood money. It was Judas's money that purchased that field. The money that he got because he betrayed Jesus. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, let no one live in it, and let another take his office. And therefore these men who have accompanied us all this time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John, to the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become witness with us of his resurrection. And so they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And so even though they were without, in essence, the Lord physically, they believed in the power of the Holy Spirit. They believed in the Word of God. They believed in prayer. They had what they needed. And can I tell you, that's all any church needs. Now, there are all kinds of things that will come with it. But if you believe in the Word of God, and you believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, and you believe in prayer, and you act and work as though you believe those things to be true, you have what you need. 
No, we have a church board. We have bank accounts. We have all those things. But apart from believing in the word of God, that it's truth, we don't have anything to gather together to share. If it's just some talk where some old guy gets up on a platform and shares with you some fanciful stories, go watch football reruns. This is the word of God. This is not a story written by men. This is God's story written by the Holy Spirit that men penned. And so these men, these women, had the word of God. They had the Holy Spirit. And they had a dynamic prayer life. And it's all they needed. And it's interesting to me, and I love this fact, and we need to see it for what it is. I'm going to have the worship team begin to make their way back out here. But as you think on these things, notice this. After Acts chapter 1, except for Peter and John, none of the original 12 are mentioned by name. That's how unimportant people are in ministry. God could do this without me. He can make this pulpit talk. Now, I didn't just say that this pulpit talks, okay? So I'm sure someone will figure out a way to edit the message and, oh, yeah, well, Jeff said the pulpit talks. No, I didn't say that. I said he could. He does not need me. Jesus, Jesus himself is the logos. He's the word. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the word is what matters. The Holy Spirit empowers the whole thing. The Holy Spirit matters. And that we seek the face of the God who created us and to gain his opinion on everything matters. That same spirit that came at Pentecost is in you and me. As they were teaching and preaching, when they said the word, they actually meant the Old Testament. People often say, hey, why are you using the Old Testament? We're in the New Testament, man. Do you realize that in the New Testament, there are almost a thousand either full quotations or partial quotations of the Old Testament in the New Testament? So if the apostles believe that the Old Testament is important to understand the work of the Holy Spirit, God himself, the power of the Holy Spirit, what it means to have a prayer life, if they believe that, I think we probably ought to follow their example. And it ends this way. Now when a dispute arose among them of which one should be considered the greatest, and he said to them, look, he's, he's reminded of this picture that we saw in Luke's gospel. Basically, they're picking a new guy to take over for Judas, the one who had betrayed the Lord. And they cast lots, and the lot falls on Matthias. I think they did the right thing. The world would need that witness, and we need that witness. And we're supposed to be that witness. The early church had power because of three principal things. The word of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, and prayer. And we'll do really good to do those same three things. Amen? Would you stand with me? I want to pray as we have taken a, a habit of doing. We're going to have some pastors come forward. Maybe you've got something going on you want to pray with. But we're going to worship for a little bit. And then I'll close this in prayer. But remember this. The church really is 
just looks a little different. But in substance, the three main things are still the main things. And so let's seek the Lord while he may be found. Amen. Father, thank you for this great time tonight. We pray that you would now bless us as we turn our attention to worship and prayer. Holy Spirit, again, we invite you to come and inhabit the praises of your people. We know that your word declares that where two or more are gathered in your name, that you are there in the midst of them. And Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and be in the midst of us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have not left us alone as orphans, but you have sent the Comforter. You have sent the Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we need more of you. And we ask for it tonight. We pray that your spirit would infuse now our worship and our time of prayer. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's worship. <clears throat> 